Blog Talk Radio. And I got the HD blues, and my life feels kind of rough. It's uh, 
Also important to know that when we divide these symptoms up or these symptom complications of Huntington's like uh, irritability and like anxiety, um, it's most often, particularly as the disease progresses over time, there's going to be more than one complication present. There may be several. And so the choice of medication to be used will, will depend on what other symptoms are there too. Um, it's important to go for the doctor to go with drugs that have the least side effects first that are effective and uh, not go to something that might have more side effects, even though it might treat the symptom. Um, another um, uh, word of caution um, and it went out of my head. It'll come back. <laughs> It'll come back later. I hope uh, there are lots of things to remember. But if you go back and read the introduction to the clinical practice guidelines, you can see that these things will apply to really all all symptoms or when you go in to see the doctor. Um, for instance, it's important that you, as a, a carer, not just the individual with Huntington's, but both of you, be allowed to give some history because there is, uh, as we know, lack of awareness in some individuals with Huntington's disease. So we need to mm -hmm. have uh, also the carer to speak up uh, and and uh, go into what the, what you believe that the person is, is suffering from or what the symptoms are. Uh, don't be afraid to, to uh, put your information in as well. Okay, um, yeah. I think we'll f first go to Katie. Did you have something that you wanted to say? No, I was just saying that that's so that's so important that for the caregivers too. The lack of awareness is so in Huntington sometimes is so prevalent. Right. Caregivers know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And even though you may go with a particular problem to see your doctor, it's important to let that doctor know about all the problems that there might be. Um, yeah, the doctor may not think it's you have time or think it's important. If you don't mention it, the doctor cannot read your mind. So if there's something else going on too, don't just limit yourself to that one symptom. And and the doctor seeing someone with Huntington should never do that because other things impact the particular symptom that that person's having almost always. Okay. Uh, I think I don't need to give a definition of agitation to this group. I think we know it when we see it uh, or pretty much know it when we yeah. feel it. Uh, agitation is, you can think of it as a severe presentation of irritability. Now, irritability and agitation is not unique to Huntington's. Uh, it happens uh, in all of us. We can, any individual can get, uh, any person can get irritable. Uh, can get agitated depending on the circumstances. Uh, irritability uh, in with Huntington's tends to be out of proportion to the stimulus. Uh, it seems that a person with Huntington's can become angered or irritated about something which which uh, we we might think is not serious enough or. Uh, just never anticipated that that might make that person irritable or, or agitated. 
Um, so there's a there's a lower threshold of expressing irritability than someone who does does not have Huntington's. Uh, there's also a longer time for letting that irritability or anger or that upsetness go away. And that has to do not because people with Huntington's are stubborn, although they might be too, uh, but it's because of the neurologic uh, damage that doesn't allow feelings to be inhibited or to be stopped or interrupted. Uh, It's harder for an individual with Huntington's to not get irritated by something. And it's harder for that person to let it go. And if we kind of remember that, that it's really the disease that is, uh, and the implications of the disease, that it is making irritability more common in your person with Huntington's, um, then as we can be a little more understanding of it, perhaps. Uh, in re- terms of responding to irritability, I think it's very important that um, people try to figure out and also the doctor, you know, go, go to the doctor. Before you go with a complaint of irritability or agitation, try to have figured out what might have caused it. It takes um, some detective work sometimes. Um, what is causing this person to be irritated? Are they not sleeping well? Are they in pain? Are they hungry? Is something else going on? Is it because they cannot do what they used to do and they're frustrated about not being able to do a task, whether it's physical or mental, that they used to be able to do? So there are a whole slew of reasons uh, why a person becomes irritated and why a person with Huntington's would become irritated. Try, try to figure out if it, uh, what might have caused it. Once the irritability has happened, uh, giving that person space, both uh, verbal space, you know, so you, you don't come back with anger, anger at, um, at the person who's irritated or agitated. You don't come up and violate their space, their physical space. You give them time to cool down as much as possible. Um, so I'm going to go on to the guidelines. I think of, uh, I would want you to think of agitation as a severe form of irritability. And if you look at the guidelines for uh, irritability, you will see that there's also one for agitation or severe, a severe uh, uh, presentation of uh, irritability or agitation. That would be treated differently than uh, the milder forms. Uh, if a person, uh, when they're agitated, is, is a threat to themselves or to others, and they don't calm down with time and space and quiet, uh, then more urgent medications and, more, and medications that have more side effects will be used uh, than they will with the milder forms. Um, yeah, and that was one question I was going to ask you is how as a caregiver or do we identify if it's mild or more severe? Well, the severe is, of course, there's going to be gradations in between. It's not 
there's a lot of gray right. in between the white and the black there, uh, or the there's a lot sure. of gray area. Um, all agitation and irritability is uncomfortable. There's always the fear that it might go on to something that's more aggressive. When we talk about severe, uh, when we talk about agitation, we talk about it's being able to go to anger, uh, to aggressiveness that is a threat to themselves or someone else, uh, or to uh, physical space, you know, hitting the wall or uh, kicking something that, or kicking a person. Those are aggressive acts. And those would be threatening uh, to uh, the safety of both individuals. And that would be handled, of course, differently. It can be all the way from, you know, if that person is very threatening and you feel you're going to be hurt, you know, you may need to call 911 if they don't calm down by leaving them space and quiet. And that's the, that's the uh, uh, extreme form of irritability, going to agitation, going to aggression. It can escalate to that. The, the, the goal of um, treating agitation is to prevent it. Now, you can't prevent all of it. And when we say prevent it, we mean try to decrease the number of times it happens or how severe it gets. Um, that's what we call prevention. Uh, so irritability uh, needs to be addressed, either with figuring out what's causing it. I, for instance, I had a patient in an adult family home who was, who was very irritable and became aggressive and not a nice person uh, with his cares. Uh, and it turned out if he was, he was hungry. He couldn't voice that he was hungry. He didn't actually know that he was hungry, perhaps, but he couldn't, he couldn't tell the carers that he was hungry. Uh, so uh, when he was fed, given something to eat every hour, he had no more agitation. Oh, and then uh, we decreased it to, you know, every two hours, something substantial. Um, and, then his irritability and his agitation uh, were taken care of. Now, one could just have put him on more medications, but that wouldn't have been a, have addressed the problem. Um, he sure. was in this gentleman was in the later stages of, MD, of, of HD and, and was losing weight uh, and was very hungry, but just couldn't tell people that that was what the problem was. He was feeling uncomfortable but he couldn't say that he was hungry. So sometimes it takes this detective work to figure out what's causing a person to be irritated or, or agitated by following for, you know, perhaps the pattern of the irritability. Is it happening between meals? Uh, is he better after meals? Then that tells you that it may be hunger. Often agitation, particularly in later stages of disease, is because a person's uncomfortable. They're in pain or they're hungry or they're having difficulty urinating or they're constipated or they have a urinary tract infection. Any number of things can cause agitation. Um, it tends to happen more commonly in later disease, partly because people cannot 
express well what's bothering them. They know that something's wrong, uh, but they can't tell us what. Earlier in in disease, of course, there's irritability and there can be uh, uh, agitation escalating uh, as well, but it it tends, I I believe it happens um, more frequently in individuals who aren't having their needs met. Um, Now, a person who is taking drugs or who is drinking too much alcohol, well, you know, those those things uh, are also things that can cause agitation, whether one has symptoms or not. Uh, so there are various things that one can look for and try to uh, mitigate. Um, certain medications may make, or caffeine or uh, maybe making a person more irritable. Uh, so treating those things. Um, it's not just uh, in terms of irritability and agitation, the, the, the other symptoms that can exacerbate it are depression. Sometimes we don't think of depression as causing irritability, but it's very much associated with it in Huntington's. Um, fortunately, treating depression and the milder forms of irritability start with the same drug, uh, as does anxiety, the SSRI, uh, and that's what is used in mild, milder forms of uh, irritability. Now, that's what but we'll get to... Uh, we're talking more now about agitation once it reached, is that more severe behavior. Uh, again, you try to figure out what's causing it and correct that. Uh, and you try to help with sleep because sleep can do it. Overstimulation, excessive noise, you know, uh, uh, will do it. You know, constant questioning of that person or questions that come too mm-hmm. quickly. The person can't answer them yeah. uh, as quickly as or do something as quickly as we might like. And that overstimulates that person and can cause mm-hmm. agitation. Um, again, the first step with agitation, even when it reaches past irritability, is to give that person space and to give them some time to calm down. Uh, in in the more severe presentations, then, then drugs are needed. In the very severe uh, agitation, where the person is a threat to themselves or someone else, uh, a doctor will use uh, an antipsychotic, usually a moderate to higher dose of antipsychotic and, uh, and or a benzodiazepam. Uh, the... These drugs are to be used short-term for agitation. If a person becomes agitated and the agitation cools down, that does not always mean that you need to continue those medicines. And and that tends to be, uh, at least in my experience, tends to be uh, uh, these drugs may be a little bit overused and used for too long a period of time uh, in that kind of situation. Uh, 
uh, I'm talking about an, an acute or a uh, kind of agitation, not one that is chronic, not one that is ongoing, the treatment would be different. Um, yeah. The, for agitation that's ongoing and causing significant distress for an individual, an antipsychotic or a mood-stabilizing drug uh, like Depakote or carbamazepine, uh, Tegretol, uh, carbamazepine uh, can be used. Uh, There are some experts who believe that there are fewer side effects uh, with the mood-altering drugs, and they're also called mood-stabilizing drugs. They're those are also drugs that are used for seizure disorders. Um, they give them this long name, uh, mood stabilizing uh, anti-epileptics, but you don't need to remember that. If there's similar drugs that are used for seizure disorders. Um, ten, some of the expert psychiatrists believe that these drugs have fewer side effects than do antipsychotics long but that was not something that was, was asked directly with these, with these guidelines. But it's something to keep in mind, uh, particularly uh, if a, another drug might need to be used. Uh, the other thing to remember is that a person may be unable to communicate their needs, may be in pain. So uh, a trial of addressing trying to find out what might be causing pain or uh, uh, giving a trial of a pain medicine, starting out with things as simple as Tylenol to see if that addresses the agitation. And then you know if it does, then you know there's pain somewhere that needs to be addressed. Now, if you use pain medications and agitation does not improve, well, then you do not continue those pain medicines. Yeah, that would make sense, right? Um, yeah. The take-home points really about agitation is to try to prevent it. Uh, you can't always, but it's much easier. It's much easier on everyone. The person who becomes agitated, it's no fun for them either. Um, trying to lessen the severity of it, try to understand why it's happening and remove those things if you can from um, the things that are bothering them, the extra noise, or maybe they're too cold, maybe there's some other discomfort. Um, Identify those if you can and and try to improve on them if we can't always. You can't alter everything at, uh, t- for calming pers- purposes, but to give it a give it a try helps to prevent the emergency room visit uh, by taking yeah. care of the uh, irritability first. And the first treatment for irritability again is an SSRI. Uh, the antipsychotics okay. and these mood stabilizers are really uh, reserved for uh, the more severe anxiety, excuse me, uh, agitation that's ongoing. Are there, are there questions about this one before I go on to something else? 
Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it was really interesting to me because I'm listening. I love that the guidelines talks about environment because I think that, you know, doctors are so, you know, and we have to remember these guidelines are for, you know, your HD expert. Like a, if you go to LeVon Goodman or we go to these experts, they know what's going on in there. They, they've, you know, they've dealt with people with HD for so many years. But these are more for the doctors that, that really don't see HD patients as much. And, you know, a lot of doctors are so scared of HD. And um, I remember the second my, my husband would go into primary care. And so my husband has Huntington's. The doctor just kind of as I get big, like, oh, my goodness, do I really have to deal with this, right? And um, so I think that they would try to treat with drugs right away and, and uh, just try to get them out of the office. So I like that these guidelines talk about environment. I remember someone telling me my husband would, we had three young children, and they said some, sometimes that noise that three young children are going to make are going to drive them crazy. And I said, no way. There's no way. Mike, Mike loves his kids. He loves being a dad. He loves noise. He loves stimulation. He was always, we always had lived a very stimulating life. And I remember the first time he got really upset, and I was shocked. And um, I think and, and it hit me then that it wasn't, it, it, he got irritated. He was irritable when the kids got out of control, and I had to readjust our life. Um, and I, I wouldn't have believed it unless it happened to me. And I saw that. So I really like that we're talking right. a lot about environment too. So overstimulation of any kind is very hard mm-hmm. for a person with Huntington's to deal with. Uh, it's coming mm-hmm. at them in ways that they cannot adjust to, cannot deal mm-hmm. with as easily. And neither that can they stop it from being irritating. For them without removing themselves, and sometimes that's what it what what it takes is to for that person. I have uh, people with have patients with earlier Huntington's disease who recognize that they're getting irritable and they don't like it, and so they'll just go in another room, close the door, until they calm down. Yeah. And I do believe that there are individuals with Huntington's once they know this is happening and that it's harder for them to to cool down, then they do not want to cause harm. Uh, They Mm -hmm. can be encouraged to, if they don't think about it themselves, to to go calm down somewhere else Mm -hmm. whenever that's possible. Yeah. 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 And I think that the first time I saw Jimmy uh, Pollard do the hurry up and wait, um, years ago I saw him do that the first time, and my eyes opened. I said, oh, my gosh, this you know, it was so great he walked us through those exercises so I could kind of somewhat understand a little bit what was going on with Mike. Um, and so it makes sense us asking them questions over and over again. And such as my husband in later stage, I see him look at me like, I'm not, I can't answer that, you know. Um, but if I give him like five minutes, I can't process minutes, will. that. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I can't yeah. process that the same way that you do uh, or that I was yeah. able to do previously. Yeah. Yep, and that's got to be so frustrating. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And frustration can make a person irritable. If if, if we validate sure. why they're frustrated, acknowledge it, and say, I, I know you're having a hard time with this, and I'm, very, I, I'm sorry you're having such a hard time adjusting to this. Validate their feeling and their frustration, mm-hmm. I think, is important. Mhm. Yeah. Good advice, Dan. Yeah, I don't. We don't have any uh, questions in the chat room, so we can 
Are we going to move on to sleep? Are we going to move over to sleep disorder? Are we going to? And of course, I'm making it sound easy when it isn't easy when you're in the middle of it. Yeah. But if a person can keep themselves calm, then that will help that other person be calm. If you if you instead become angry or upset yourself, then that can cause the behavior to escalate in the other person. Now it's hard for us, you know, when you're when you're uh, presented with someone who's angry at you not to be angry back, or irritated by you not to be irritated back. Uh, learning how to do that better, backing away and being quiet, uh, giving some calmness to yourself and to that person uh, is one of the most helpful things you can learn to do. Mm-hmm. Takes mm-hmm. practice though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Alrighty. We can go on to sleep. I know we're, we're getting where we're, probably need to do that, right? Um, yeah. Sleep disorder, sleep problems are very common in Huntington's. They have not been well studied. Mm-hmm. So when we have, uh, and, and, and with any guideline for Huntington's, any psychiatric or mood disorder guideline, we have no evidence base because we have no studies that tell us what to do that help us know with evidence or clinical trials what to do. We don't have any of that. And so these guidelines, uh, just a reminder that they are based on what the experts think is right, but we don't have clinical trials to to show us that. Now, people, uh, for instance, with Parkinson's disease, that sleep disorders, sleep disorders associated with that have been better studied. more money to do that, more people with Parkinson's. So there are, there are lots of reasons why we don't or have as many clinical trials for such things in Huntington's, but we don't. So we go with what the experts think is the way to go. I also uh, remind you that individual symptoms uh, of Huntington's, whether it's sleep problems or anxiety or depression, uh, any number of problems in Huntington's can be uh, the treatments are the same as in the general population, pretty much. Certainly in the general population of individuals who have some cognitive impairment. Uh, when we start talking about sleep disorders, you know, uh, the Benzodiazepines are used uh, a fair amount, probably overused in the general population to help with sleep problems. Uh, we use what we should exercise much more caution in having that drug be prescribed for long-term use because it interferes in the person's being able to think, and there are more falls. And falls are dangerous things for anyone, but particularly uh, for Huntington's. So keeping that in mind as uh, as a difference, um, and I see I have have some typos in in this sleep study, in my sleep thing here as I go over it, shame on me. 
the the guidelines for sleep uh, is you you identify and treat any medical conditions or needs that might be contributing to the sleep disturbance. Are you hungry? Are you having pain? Do you are you short of breath? Do you have any other medical problem that might be causing sleep problems? Are you depressed? Are you anxious? Obsessive perseverative or obsessive compulsive behaviors can also interfere with sleep because that promotes an anxiety. Things you have to get done, things that you have to do over and over, or thoughts that are in your head over and over can interfere with sleep. So treating those other parts of Huntington's may be sufficient for helping with sleep. One other important thing to remember with uh, with Huntington's when we're on, when individuals are on a number of drugs is, you know, a lot of them can cause some sedation. Antipsychotics tend to do that, the more commonly used ones. Uh, Seroquel uh, or uh, quetiapine, the other name for it, you don't need to remember that, uh, is very sedative and can be used for sleep, in fact. But you give it at night. So you do not give it during the day. Don't split, don't have the doctors split dose it. You know, it's long acting. So give it at night because you want to have people awake during the day and uh, uh, more relaxed at night. Uh, So go over, look at your person's drugs. The doctor should look at those drugs and see if they're contributing to the problem. Are they making people sleepy during the day so they then take too long of a nap and then can't sleep at night? Well, just adjusting medications may be all that needs to be done. I think the most, the very most important thing about sleep disorder in Huntington's is to, is sleep hygiene. We I don't know why they call it sleep hygiene, uh, but that they do. Are good sleep, healthy behaviors, we should call them. Uh, they, the most important part of it is going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time. Uh, and I don't mean going to bed at 2 in the morning and getting up at noon. I'm talking about going to bed at a reasonable time evening, uh, and getting up a reasonable time in the morning so you will have the benefit of the most sunlight that you can have. It happens often in Huntington's that uh, there's a disruption of the circadian cycle, it's called, and there's been actually a lot of research done on this by very good people that show that it happens in mouse models, but it also happens in people. And many of us can 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 cite that, you know, our, our, our loved one uh, uh, keeps staying up at way late at night and then wants to sleep till noon uh, and then is groggy during the day, takes a nap, and then can't fall asleep at night. Uh, and yep. that can become a cycle that's very disruptive for that person and, and, for, and for family members or carers. The best yep. way yeah, absolutely. of 
you know, socking someone with a medication, it may not be the best way to, and I say socking them because it's like, you know, you, you don't want to use a medication that slows down thinking or, or makes them at greater risk for a fall if you don't have to. If, you, if, if mm-hmm. that's not something, if you can get it, if you can accomplish it with some behavioral means. And what I recommend is to get a very loud alarm clock and uh, far away from where the person's sleeping so you can't turn it off. They have to get up to turn it off. And that person should stay up no matter what time they went to bed the night before. Um, and get in that cycle, enforcing it in, in, as the best that one can. Now, you can't, can't start out with... Uh, um, having a person, um, if, if you ha- are already in that cycle of going to bed at two and getting up at noon, I mean, you can't force someone to go to bed at eight and get up at eight. Um, right. You instead, you, you, you then we'll do it little by little. <laughs> yeah, but you do and it HD little by little. Will yeah. you be irritable? Right. Will you? Will it be hard the first few days? Yes, it will. So you have to yeah, bite that yeah. bullet. You don't have to do it full force. You can sneak up on it. One hour earlier, right. two hours earlier, you're up. You know, work mm-hmm. on it over time and get that person up. Sure. The um, uh, benefit of that, you know, there has we, we there's no studies that show this really in Huntington's, but the uh, Experts believe that sleep uh, that's interfered with can accelerate how fast Huntington's progresses. Hmm. So dealing with the sleep disorder, now can we prove that? No. But a lot of the experts truly believe that. And there are, mm-hmm. is some animal evidence for that or, you know, uh, animal model evidence for that. Um, if you, um, uh, so it's an important one not to let go. Uh, just get, get it, get worse and worse because you, you want to, you want to slow down the disease if you can. And this is one right. way that you may be able to do it by getting an alarm clock and going, getting people back into a better rhythm uh, of, when they sleep and, and, and when they're awake. Um, one other, uh, we didn't go into this in the guidelines, but there are, you know, there are uh, light sources that you can use uh, to, particularly in, in, in Seattle here, we have a lot of dark and rain water, uh, and it's easy to sleep in, easier to sleep in because it's dark. Uh, so getting up at an irregular time and shining a little bit of this light on you, uh, I think you want to increase your, you know, your alertness. And I, I don't think it would cause any harm with Huntington's. We didn't discuss that in, in, in sleep here, but I, I just brought that up because it's dark here in Seattle. Um, one of the, because there's a lot of disruption to day, night, if you just let it go, uh, let me go back to the sleep hygiene. I just talked about getting up and going to bed at the same time. Now, we don't always get to go to bed at the same time. 
However, we need to be pretty religious about getting up at the same time, or otherwise we, we kind of float into that old problem of staying up too late, sleeping too late. So mm-hmm. the important thing is to get up at the same time at a reasonable time each day to reset our clock. The, as much comfort as can be provided, uh, you know, in the bedroom, um, shouldn't be too cold or too hot, too noisy. Um, people should be as comfortable as possible, not be stimulated before bedtime. Uh, now that includes caffeine containing things and alcohol. You know, we think alcohol makes us sleepy. Well, briefly perhaps, but it can keep you awake later. And that's a well-known phenomenon. So uh, limit the alcohol uh, be- in early evening or make it earlier in the evening when one has has any alcohol and it should be a small amount. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having a TV in the bedroom is not so good because it's stimulating. It right. makes it harder for you to fall asleep on time. Uh, it should be dark in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you shouldn't have your uh, iPad there or your cell phone or your whatever electronics that you want to play with will keep you awake. Uh, try yeah. not and try to give those up early in the evening. Um, and when we talk about drugs, uh, melatonin is an option. Now, that really has not been studied in Huntington's. Um, however, uh, using it Melatonin normally, uh, when it gets dark out, that's when the melatonin levels rise, uh, and then they go down in the morning when the sun comes up. Uh, So it's very light sensitive, uh, and when dark comes, melatonin goes up. And if uh, if you take if if a person takes melatonin, there's some uh, again no evidence here, but. Uh, or very limited evidence in other diseases that it may be helpful. And it's, it's pretty much risk-free. Nothing's ever completely risk-free, but in terms of side effects, um, I can't, I have tried it with individuals that it's not been successful with and, but other individuals who swear by it. So um, it's worth trying, I believe. And if you're going to ask me the dosage, well, I don't know because there isn't any good study, but um, I can tell you studies done in other diseases are somewhere between about two um, to six, sometimes even in the studies up to 12 milligrams at night. I'm not suggesting that Mm. one start with that at all, but in the one or two milligram range. Um, And taken, not right at bedtime, but when it gets dark. Because you want it to slowly go up. Uh, if you're mimicking what normal sleep patterns are, and I think that that is probably what we're trying to do. Uh, yeah. Sedating antidepressants like mirtazapine or Remeron uh, or trazodone, mm. given at bedtime or drug options, these are, uh, can one wake up with a hangover from either one of these? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. The experts thought that the dosage of mirtazapine uh, in the lower range is better than a higher dosage uh, because 
a higher dosage doesn't help that much more with sleep, but you're more likely to have a hangover in the morning. You know, you don't want to wake up tired. So if you can limit that, that would be great. So the 15 milligrams, the experts tended to think that um, uh, the experts in the committee, the psychiatrists thought that the lower dosage uh, was probably better than the higher dosage. Uh, So the first options would be, uh, I think, mirtazapine and trazodone. Now, both of these are antidepressants also. Both mm-hmm. of them help with anxiety. So you're, you're getting more than one bird with this stone, these stones. Now, are these real strong drugs for, for depression? No, they aren't. But they're helpful, right. and you might as well get a little boost from a sleeping medication if you need these. Uh, and they're, rel- they're a little less long-acting, so there's a less hangover, particularly with the lower dosages. Now, sedating antipsychotics like Cyprexa or Seroquel, uh, but given at bedtime, not our drug options also for uh, sleep disorders, but they, it, it's a more, these drugs have more side effects, but they, th- these drugs may be needed for other symptoms. They may be needed for chorea. Uh, so if you have another symptom that you need to be using a uh, that that antipsychotic is useful for it and that you need to use it for, then and and there's a sleep problem, then one of the more sedative or sedating antipsychotics would be a good a good idea. Um, there's another drug that's not used frequently by the neurologist, but more frequently by Psychiatrists, the clomipramine was also an option if there is uh, sleep disorder and there are also severe obsessive perseverative uh, symptoms. Then that was an, is an option. We're not saying that a person need has, that has to be used, but it can be considered because it is sedating. It helps with anxiety. Uh, it it uh, helps with agitation in some individuals. And finally, the use of the benzodiazepines like Valium or Xenex, uh, Ativan, uh, are discouraged, uh, particularly uh, in people who have some cognitive impairment due to increased risks of confusion and falls. Uh, this happens also in, uh, in the elderly population. The benzodiazepines are associated with falls. Uh, and in mm-hmm. early Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, these drugs are associated with more falls and confusion. So mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean that it should never be used. Uh, maybe if, it, if everything else fails, then that's all you have left. Uh, use it cautiously. Uh, and, and in individuals who are, are, who, who are no longer walking or, you know, and mm-hmm. not at risk yeah. of falls, well, then, then that's a different ballgame. That's a different situation. That's why guidelines are meant to be tools. They're not meant to be followed rigidly because individuals with Huntington's vary so much, and the same person will vary a lot over stages of disease. So the guidelines are tools to help a physician uh, better know what the experts are doing. That doesn't mean that they should do it in each situation, but what the experts usually do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it, is it a big, is it a very troublesome symptom, complication of Huntington's? Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. And needs to be worked on for, um, uh, I so much advise to try to stay away from drugs if you can. Sometimes you can't. And sometimes you need mm-hmm. one, a drug to help reset a cycle. Each individual's different. Work on the easy, work on the, it's, oh, if you can do something without a medicine, that's always better. So yeah. if you can deal with the, if you can, put in those sleep hygiene changes, then I think that that would be the most beneficial thing to do. And even if you're going to use a drug, you still need to do those things. Yeah. Yeah. You I know, hope I have I've addressed that for you. Yeah. Like what about drugs? Like um, these are drugs like that I've heard of people in the community and I know that it, it caused problems. Drugs like Ambien, these kind of drugs, these are drugs that have come well, that up is that, a- that they, is people with HD don't do well. It yeah. is. Okay. That is essentially something like a, a benzodiazepine. It will have the same side effects as a benzodiazepine. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of people with HD going on, and, and it's in general population when I've read it, too, because I've heard these stories go on within the community, and it causes hallucinations, or or they they start to almost have delusions, almost. Um, uh, but, I mean, I've, I've read that with general population on that as well so right yeah it was it was when it was first introduced it was thought not to be uh, to create dependence or addiction I think Uh dependence uh is the better word but it it does Uh, so and it has the same site even though it's not a direct benzodiazepine it's an equivalent drug pretty much for side effects so I would put it in the same group as the benzo uh, not to be used if, uh, in, unless absolutely nothing else works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, everybody's different. Now, are there some individuals, I have a, a patient who came in on this drug and was doing well. Did I mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. this drug away from him? I didn't. So it's it, it's patient preference and physician judgment um, there weren't falls now later as his disease progresses might there be and then then I would say stop this please let's do something else so it's again mm-hmm. guidelines are tools to be used physician judgment and I think that was my judgment there he'd been on this a long time it helps what am I doing disrupting his sleep mm-hmm. if I don't have a good reason to do that uh, and Patient preference, he's sleeping. Doc, why are you going to fiddle with this? And I'll have to say, well, I probably shouldn't. Um, so each each person's different. Did we cover every right. drug that could be used? No, we didn't. We covered those that are commonly used by uh, the Huntington's experts. Did we get mm-hmm. every single one of them? Probably not. Right. It, it's interesting. I, I think that, um, you know, I hear a lot at the end stage of HD or in these final stages that, that my loved one sleeps all the time. They sleep. And I, and I think, you know, I've always kind of thought, you know, oh, you know, they're very sick at the end stage of HD. And um, they sleep all the time. They sleep all the time. I'm sure that has a lot to do with HD being in the end stages. But I also look and a lot of these drugs are used for different, you know, for different things in the end stages. 
that I hear well, about. So I wonder if those that causes a lot of sleep. They are used commonly in hospice. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. Mm-hmm. They are used for comfort, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. relaxation. Now, that's a, you know these are non-ambulatory people. So again, stage of disease is important. Do I use these yeah. drugs in people who no longer can walk or who are on hospice? Yes, I do. That's a sure. different ball game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Com- things that I wouldn't use before hospice, I'll use in hospice. I'll use a barbiturate sure. in hospice, uh, but I wouldn't use that before. Um, yeah. So it's it's different at very end of life and hospice. Comforts the goal. Yeah, I think that's really important too. Is is what stage of HD? And then I think the general practice doctors they don't do they really even understand the stages of HD? Well, you know, uh, as I said once in a lecture, I think that was who you were at, is that general physicians you've just had more education than most general physicians get ever on the psychiatric symptoms of Huntington's disease. Do they yeah. know much about it? No. Do they know much about how drugs should change over the course of the disease? No, because they were not taught. And so I think that it's, 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 uh, and why are, why are they a little afraid when a Huntington's individual comes in? Because they they don't like to feel like they don't know what they're doing. Uh, And of course Mm -hmm. they don't because they haven't been taught. Um, The, this, This is one of the reasons I think guidelines are most important, and and that is that a family can take a list of these to that doctor and help them, help your person um, in ways that the experts do it, uh, to use this as a tool. Um, That's where I think they are most useful. Do, Do your Center of Excellence doctors need these things? Probably not. Uh, could all of us doctors who work with Huntington's uh, learn a little bit about them and maybe be a better physician? I think so, yes. You know, quality yeah. can always, should always, working on improving quality should be there, whether it's in Huntington's yeah. or diabetes. Uh, and, and an expert right. in diabetes um, will want to have the quality of diabetes care improved. And so should so so do our people, our Huntington's experts. Um, yeah. So I think it can be used, you know, in different ways for for different physicians. But those who don't see Huntington's very much, you it takes a while to learn if you don't have a guideline to help guide you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we we covered. Um covered a lot, and I, this was a lot of really good information. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add, Dr. Goodman? I, we're coming up to our hour, so. Oh, I, I think I've, I've uh, spouted I think we could talk I about this stuff for so long. I found a few typos in my articles along the way, so uh, that helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, you guys, we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to finish up this series next Wednesday. Um, we've talked about last, like I said, last time we talked about anxiety. Um, this time we talked about um, 
agitation and irritability and sleep disorder. We still have um, apathy and psychosis. Um, and oh, and the obsessive compulsive behaviors. So, um, right. and I, I think, they, I think those. those three can be covered covered uh, in the in the okay. final hour. I really do. Okay, great. So we will cover those um, next week, you guys. If you want to, like always, they're archived shows. So if you ever just need another guide, or if you think I don't, I don't really remember what that answer was, but I know I heard it. You guys can always find all these archived on iTunes as well as Blog Talk Radio. So tune in next week um, at one o'clock, and we will talk about apathy, OCD, um, and um, and you can uh, psychosis. find them on uh-huh. online as well. Uh, some people learn. Remember things better by reading it. I do yes. uh, than by yep. uh, listening to it in a lecture. I often do. So uh, uh, yep. look at them on, on the HDW website and uh, learn yep. from them. I hope and, and also consider taking them to your doctor or the peer-reviewed article that it's linked to. Yep, yep. And you guys can always find that at hddrugworks.org. And um, we have the links on our show page um, as well to get to uh, these specific articles. But go visit hddrugworks.org anyways to look at articles in the past and archived articles. It's really a great resource for the Huntington's disease community. So we are thankful for Dr. Goodman for having this site for us. Um, I think that is it for now. Tune in next week. Uh, Same time, same place. Everyone, please have a safe night and a happy Halloween. And we will talk to you all next week. (laughs) Thanks, Dr. Goodman.